It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Seb Stafford-Bloor from TIFO Football, and Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst. Sometimes, you know, we get it wrong. I think it's fair to say we all expected an all-Manchester FA Cup final. Instead, it's a London derby between Chelsea and Arsenal. Why? Let's look at two managers in the same city, but at different stages of their career. Questions can and should be asked about the selection and strategy of Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. He's got a big decision coming up on David Gehaia. But what about Pep Guardiola? It would be absurd to question his body of work as a coach. But Aid, should his record at Manchester City be coming under more rigorous scrutiny? <laughs> oh, it's such a tough one because, because he is an exceptional coach. He really is. But he's not perfect. And it's a slightly checkered record, it's fair to say. Yeah, I... I if you're, if people are claiming that he is, he is the perfect coach and that he's flawless, then that's clearly not true. He's got blind spots, no doubt about it, in terms of of the way that they set up defensively. I think that the fullbacks have have been weak for a long, long time. It's something he hasn't addressed. The centre backs too, and and his record in in European competition, when coming up against the elite, has exposed those those deficiencies tactically so so yeah he's he's made mistakes and isn't the second coming as a as a as a coach but he's still he's still truly exceptional in my opinion and and uh, someone to be admired what about let's look at the specifics so if we could and recruitment um you know i did some sort of trawling around on transfer marked looking at the fees that have been paid for players in the guardiola era at city Money has been paid for 31 players. Now, the 18 most expensive of those players cost £664 million. So you compare that to his time at Bayern, where I think he spent €204 million. At Barca, it was about €340 million. And you've got to ask, how many unqualified successes there? I suppose you can say Laporte, 56 and a half million Edison 36 Gabriel Jesus 29 apart from that it doesn't really tell you that there's a very functional recruitment department at the city 
Yeah, and I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Mike. I mean, the comparison between City and, and Bayern Munich, well, actually, Bayern Munich, the recruitment was very good. I think a player like uh, Thiago has been outstanding for Bayern uh, for the last six or seven years. But I, I have big questions about how City are light on certain players, particularly defensively. I mean, the fullbacks alone are very interesting. I mean, centre-backs, obviously, Stones is the is the, the headliner, Otamendi. I mean, I know he's been a first-teamer for a long time, but I'm not convinced that he's ever shown that he's a, a defender of the kind of the calibre that his fee suggested. Danilo was an extraordinary one because he was a player that never really seemed to fit the system because he arrived in the same year as Carl Walker and he was, you know, always more comfortable on the right side of the defence. So, I mean, I, I've got a little bit of sympathy because if you're, if you're Manchester City and you're negotiating for a player, it's pretty difficult to find a strong negotiating position, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, in the past, um, I think Ed Woodward has spoken at Manchester United about the kind of the taxes applied on their transfer interest. And naturally that inflates fees. At the same time, however, I think in both cases, but obviously because we're, we're speaking specifically about City, I think some of the players they chase are, it's, they're, these are confusing decisions. And also, you know, I, 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 maybe there isn't quite enough scrutiny of that department because whenever we talk about City's executive structure, all that ever gets said is, well, it's in the, the imported Barcelona model. It's full of all of these employees that are associated with so much success in the past. And yet, is there the same kind of discussion about the actual dynamics, the micro dynamics and the way that there is at, say, for instance, Arsenal? We know about the transfer committee at Arsenal. We don't know what it does, but we know of its existence, <laughs> you know, and we, uh, you know, similarly, we understand that the dynamic at Liverpool uh, with Michael Edwards and, uh, you know, the relationship he has with Jurgen Klopp and the owners above him. At City, not quite the same. Who is the dominant voice in these conversations? Yeah, look, I think it's easy to look back and, and say that the ex-player was a mistake and whatnot. But 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 Carl Walker, they signed him when he was on top of top of his game at Spurs. Benjamin Mendy, I would have signed him based on the performances that he was producing in the Champions League. So so I, I think that those two players, I understand why why they went for them. But 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 yeah, you're right in terms of the structure. How does it, how does it work? What, What's the decision-making process? I do think a lot have worked. I mean, Leroy Sané hasn't got a mention. I think that he was a good pickup, and they'll surely make a, a handy profit on him. I, I wouldn't write off Rodri either. I know that he costs an awful lot of money, but um, he's a nice. He's done player. some good things this. Season. Yeah, he's, he's, he's okay. a decent enough player. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, yeah, but look, what, what do you get for sixty right. million? I suppose <laughs> these days it's it's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, I think. You could probably scrutinise most clubs and, and and pick out winners and and losers, but but not to not to not on this scale, surely. Aid, you know, six hundred and sixty-four million pounds is an awful lot of pennies, isn't it? Yeah, but, yeah, but to them, it's 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 not that big a deal, is it? It's, it's as simple as that. You pay what you can afford, and they felt that they could speculate almost sixty million on Joao Cancelo and stick him on the bench. He could be a backup, and but they they knew that. They didn't. They didn't necessarily believe he would walk straight into the team ahead of, ahead of Carl Walker. It's they just live in a different world to the rest of us, Manchester City. So, so yeah, that, I think that's that's why they they pay over the odds because because they can. Yeah. So is it in in that context, Seb? Is it fair that they should be judged by different standards, more exalted standards? Because look at the implications of potential defeat to Real Madrid in the Champions League tie which is outstanding if you look at City and think right okay this should be a club that wins the Champions League 
they're surely four players short of a Champions League winning team, aren't they? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, um, <clears throat> I think we've we've raised this several times before. Is that I, I think probably I'd have at least three players within that defensive system need to change. But Mike, what, what it's interesting the exalted standards and the, the way they're criticised. I, I I do think they should be held to that higher standard. And I think part of the reason why is because of the way that Guardiola behaves. Guardiola, for you know, for anyone who's who's been in one of his press conferences, is extraordinarily sensitive. He's very prickly. He doesn't react well to anything other than pure, unfiltered praise. And I think this creates this situation where, okay, with 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 reference to the to the Real Madrid game, to that tie, he's taking a lead into a second leg against a manager who is kind of, I mean, Zinedine Zidane is is the most disrespected three-time winner of a European Cup in, in the history of sport. And yet, sort of, if you place Guardiola against someone like that and he loses, you're going to get criticism because of, A, all the things that are said about him, rightly. He's one of the most successful uh, coaches of his generation, of any generation. But also the way he he holds himself in the game and this kind of status that that he has. It's natural. This is what's going to happen. This is life at the top of the game. Yeah. On that, on Guardiola quick, quickly, no, but not Guardiola, the city, the club. One thing that they do do that, that maybe others don't, like Manchester United... That they have a wage structure of sorts, don't they? They have walked away from quite a few deals in terms of, of not wanting to pay crazy money for certain individuals. So, so it's a strange one. They're, they're happy to pay the big fees, but sometimes they, they're more, they, will, they will walk away from a deal they want to do if the player seeks, hey, seeks crazy Hey, sometimes wages. they've been really smart with that. I mean, walking away from Alex San- Alexis Sanchez looks a really smart move. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, because that's, that's one of the worst transfers in the history of the Premier League, that really certainly one of the worst contracts. So they, 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 they are capable of it. It's just that it's, it's weird that that doesn't extend across the board, isn't it? I'd be worried, by the way, if, uh, if I was a Man City fan about this Real Madrid tie on the basis of, of the chances that they've been conceding of, of late. And, and, and I, I, did some, I sort of did a bit of digging in terms of stats with City. And this, again, points towards Guardiola and actually his in-game management. Okay, 11 times they've lost this season, City, in all competitions. In seven of them now, they've not just conceded the first goal, they've conceded the second goal as well. They've gone 2-0 down, which which tells tells you that they don't react well to chasing games. And if, you, if you're being ultra-critical, you, you have to look at the manager there and say, what is he doing to change things around, to change the pattern of matches, to, to get them back into games? From 1-0 down... I mean, 10 of the 11 defeats they've conceded first. They are not good chasers, and that doesn't reflect brilliantly on Pep. Yeah, OK. So if we're going to question the sorcerer, let's let's also talk mm-hmm. about the apprentice, Mikel Arteta. Seb, tactically, he seems unafraid to change his shape. If you look at the way that they've been playing, it, it sort of conforms to the the way the game has been uh, sort of strategized since the restart, you know, there was a, there, I saw a statistical summary where there's less pressing, more, more passes per shot, more emphasis on controlled possession, more loan mowers. Not again, not again. <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think I th- let's just apologize to anyone listening. Like, uh, yeah, we, anyway, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, <laughs> Mikel Arteta as a tactician and as a leader discuss very impressed with him Mike 
on that sort of um, tactical strategic note, I thought the first goal they scored against Man City at the weekend, the first Aubameyang goal, the, all those passes, that working out from the back, I felt that was kind of the emblem of what footballs looked like during this period. Forgive me, I've forgotten where I read it, but I read a really interesting article about how maybe that goal doesn't get scored if there's a crowd in the stadium. Just because if you're passing the ball out, before, before, they, before Arsenal took the lead in that game, they'd had a few ropey moments at the back with trying to work the ball up into midfield between uh, Mustafi and Luis. There was a little bit of a miscommunication. I think Raheem Sterling might have scored in the first 10 minutes. You're seeing the protagonist Arsenal that Unai Emery promised. When he first came in and he said, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be the protagonist. We're going to be, we're going to be the aggressors on the ball. And obviously that was a rope which was eventually used to hang him. Now with Arteta, that's actually the reality. Arsenal are bolder. Forgetting all the issues that still exist in their departments, they need a couple of players in defence, probably in midfield. These are problems we're aware of. The way they're playing is more modern. It's more in keeping with what we've seen from teams like Manchester City, from teams like Liverpool. You know, not in the same way. They're not doing it to the same standard. They are at least conforming to a kind of a, a more modern approach. So, if we look at Arsenal, record 21st FA Cup final... We talked about recruitment in terms of Manchester City. What about Arsenal? Is it now time for the board to invest in Arteta's expertise and vision? Well, I think so. I I think that this was a landmark victory potentially in that sense. If there were people at the top of Arsenal's hierarchy that weren't sure whether they were willing to speculate, to accumulate, maybe they they would have had their arms twisted by, by really professional win against Manchester City that that did showcase Arteta's qualities as a coach. He's a very bright young manager. I like him as a disciplinarian. Seb's always already referenced it, you know, how he's dealing with Ozil and, and Guendouzi, I think, was a line in the sand. And wasn't that a, an incredibly disciplined performance? And it was a clever performance because it preyed on City's weaknesses. It was it was all about Denying their forwards the space, so so you know, getting players behind the ball, having this good structure and shape, but also when there was a chance to go and win it inside the final third, to turn the ball over in a great area, they were really aggressive in everything they did, and and, and that was that stood out to me. But in terms of recruitment, yes, he needs better players to work with. Nothing has changed on that on that score. Yes, it's a brilliant result, but but he needs better defensive players for sure. And, and also, crucially, to be able to keep the star men that he's already got in forward areas. You know, Bamiang and Lacazette, again, it was another reminder of, of what they they bring to the table. Lacazette won't score as many goals as Pierre-Eric and Bamiang, but he, he does a terrific job for the team. It might be that he sacrificed for a rebuild, but, but I, I, I would really regret seeing him or a Bamiang leave this summer because... They've got plenty more to offer. Yeah, if if I were an Arsenal fan, I'd be a bit worried about you know what seem to be pretty well sourced stories speculating about a potential swap, Coutinho for Guendouzi. You know, surely in that the the wages will be prohibitive, if nothing else. Is it better to basically cut cloth and say, okay, let's prioritise another loan for you know Danny Sabayos, for example? Where would you pitch it, Seb? That whole strategy of recruitment? I think it's really important they prioritise where they're going to be in sort of five years' time. I saw the Coutinho story, Mike. I'm also aware of what Arsenal's wage spend is and the kind of money that it would cost to bring a Coutinho in at this stage of his career. Now, 
Also, let's be aware of who Philip Coutinho's agent is, because Kia Drabchen has been the centre of a lot of news relating to Arsenal with new contracts and potential new players. And it's worth saying that no football club really was ever built around the kind of the, the interests of an agent or a representative, as Kia Drabchen prefers to be referred to to be referred as. I want to see Arsenal looking at components, not stars of the game. I want to see them buy players or loan players who can gradually be worked into this team. So if Arsenal need a centre-half, they need a full-back or they need a midfielder, the answer to them under Arteta isn't just to go out and buy someone who has an established reputation in the game. It's to buy a piece of soft clay, essentially, someone who can come in and gradually move up the pay scale not exerting pressure on the club's financial structure and become the kind of player that Mikel Arteta needs them to be. Because I think one of the things we've seen also is is that one of the commodities that he prefers is submissiveness almost. If you're not going to bow to his authority, which let's be honest, someone like Philip Coutinho is not going to do, given where he's been in the game and given the things that he, given the teams he's played in, do you think he's going to come in and bow to the authority of a manager who has less than a year's experience in the game? No. So you have to work around that scenario and that's where Arsenal are really at the moment. Mm, so in that context, Aid, more Kieran Tierney's? <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, there, there were some people singing the, the Kieran Tierney song. Actually, you know the old Ryan Giggs song. Number one was Kieran Tierney. Number two was Kieran Tierney. <laughs> because because he, he is he, he has the attitude that you want from from all of your players. He's he's very switched on. He's aggressive, determined in everything that he does, and he just seems like a real a real old fashioned team man doesn't he clubman of the year Kieran Tierney I don't think they give out the clubman of the year award anymore do they but but he would probably win it every single time I, I like him I liked him at Celtic I think he's a, he's a proper fullback who can also as we've seen now do a very very good job as a left-sided central defender I thought the way that he tucked in and played so narrowly against City really helped David Luiz put in such a such a great individual performance I thought those two uh, were exceptional so yeah, look, it, I, I do agree with Seb. I, I think that the, the superstar names are not necessarily what, what Arsenal need. You can't be signing players just because you have good relationships w- w- with certain agents. You have to get the right types for the manager and for for their philosophy. I'm excited about it. I really am because I do, I do feel that Arteta will improve players. But I, I just hope that he's given the funds because we, without the funds, Arsenal will be able to produce these one-off excellent performances and beat anybody but but they will continue to flounder unless they bring in just more talented defensive players mm. you mentioned in passing David Luiz there I thought there was a really good interview with uh, Des Kelly after the game where uh, Luiz talked about you know football is about surviving and you saw the human side of of a seasoned footballer who let's be honest we gave terrible clog to about a couple of weeks ago is that the sort of performance Seb that emphasizes the riddle about David Luiz because he's this there is a very good player in there somewhere but it doesn't turn up that often I think that's right Mike I think one of the things with with Luiz is um, when you watch him play even when he's at his very very worst it's not a mystery why so many clubs have taken a risk on him and so many clubs have been willing to indulge his game for the good parts that still exist within it but it's it's actually a lovely story i i for, for all his flaws as a footballer i really enjoy listening to david Luiz. he's a frank talker he's very blunt he's honest the des kelly interview was wonderful because i, I think des did very well to be honest because he sort of tiptoed around a sensitive issue 
But it's very rare that you see a player take ownership of something like that and say, actually, let's be honest, it was criticism of me. You know, not of anyone around me, not of the goalkeeper, not of the defensive midfielders. It was aimed at me. I was the source of, you know, all the mockery. And I, yeah, it was just this wonderful human moment. And it, it reminded me a little bit of, of Per Mertesacker's cup final performance. Mertesacker obviously was an outstanding defender and it was a very different scenario, but he was presumed to be well past his best. And I remember the days leading up to the cup final when it was obvious that he was going to play. He was, I mean, he was mocked before he'd even stepped on the pitch. And it was very similar because they both gave outstanding performances in situations where you would expect anything but. So it was, it was great. It was, it was good for the game, actually, because I think sometimes these kind of, these narratives about sort of the comedic elements of a player's game. And we spoke about Phil Jones a few few weeks ago, and it's exactly the same there, where, where someone becomes a figure of fun and everything they do is a meme and, you know, a laugh, cry emoji, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of stuff. It's nice when a player breaks that cycle, and that's what Luis did over the weekend. Mm. And football, as you know, well, aid is all about season and opportunity when it arrives. Emmy Martinez has done exceptionally well. Do you think Leno will get his place back? <laughs> it's a good question. It's not going to be a foregone conclusion that he'll get his place back because Emmy Martinez has been exceptional. Oh, no question about it. He he is he's got an aura. He's physically, you know, he's a very big keeper. He's dominant with his decision making in the air. His long levers, those long arms of his, have, have saved at least a couple of goals in, in recent games. You can't drop him. Mikel Arteta won't drop him. No chance. Absolutely no chance Arteta leaves Martinez out of the side until he starts to make errors, in my opinion. Leno is very unfortunate on him because he was having a very, very good season and was undisputed number one. But you, you can't ignore what you're seeing with your own eyes. And, and Martinez, uh, in the space of a few weeks, has transformed himself from little-known number two outside of Emirates Stadium into one of the Premier League's most exciting goalkeepers. He's not young. You've got to remember that. He's in his late 20s. He's had had to wait a long, long time for this opportunity. And he has grabbed it. You're right. And and look, if if he does lose his place to Bernd Leno at some stage early on next season then uh, there'll be a queue around the block to, to sign him. He if you're of it catches everything, doesn't he? Like that, I, I, That's what I really like about him. He's, he reminds me a little mm-hmm. bit of Bruce Grobelar. Uh, not necessarily in style, but in the way that his aim always is to catch everything. That save he made from Riyad Mahrez, when Mahrez cut in to, uh, you know, across the box and then drove at his near post. A, the reach on his left hand to get to the ball, but also it's stuck. Because if, if that ball rebounds back into a dangerous area, that's a goal. It's just outstanding goalkeeping. I mean, I, I feel like sometimes goalkeepers are are always prone to either being underrated or overrated, and their saves they make, you know, similarly so. And that's a really good example of people just seeing what looks like a, a bread and butter save, and actually misread it. It's that's brilliant goalkeeping. On that shot, by the way, it was the only shot on target, wasn't it, for for Manchester City in the game? I asked our pals at at Opta, when's the last time in a domestic match, domestic competition? that Manchester City had one shot on target or fewer. March 2017, Stoke really? City wow. in the Premier League. Yeah, quite remarkable. So, so look, it's a, it's, a, it's a feat of sorts. And I think that, that the protection he got, actually, Arsenal had a bit of luck with some wayward finishing, of course, from City. But, but, but the protection Martinez got in this game, not just from the back three, but from the whole eleven, was a bit special, I think. And, it, and it's one, it's a performance that Arsenal fans 
are very proud of, and rightly so. Okay, since we're talking about stats, here's one for you, Seb. I've stolen it from uh, Rich Jolly, who comes up with some belters now. Hey, man, Rich Jolly owns all the stats, though, doesn't he? (laughs) (laughs) Right. um, Olivier Giroud could become the first player to win the FA Cup five times in seven seasons since Charles Wollaston, who, as every schoolboy knows, did that between 1872 and 1878. He is evergreen, isn't he, Mr. Mr. Giroud? Monsieur Giroud? I think he has attributes that don't really wear with time. I think if you look at what makes him a good player and what makes him a um, you know a, a, a incredible forward even now, well into his thirties, those aren't attributes that kind of depend on athleticism or explosiveness. But also, guys, I mean, I, I think what's what's really important about someone like that is let, let's let's focus on his professionalism. Olivier Giroud, until probably about four or five months ago, didn't have a future at Chelsea. If you look at the way he was treated in the first half of this season, I think that if it had been another manager, someone that the media didn't quite as like, like, like as much as we do in Frank Lampard, let's be fair, that would have received a little bit more criticism because he was, he was kind of annexed from the side for no good reason. And yet he came back in when the side needed him, when injuries made it a necessity, when it was revealed that really, when it was shown that Mishibashiwai, not really good enough to play at this level and he's come in and he's been decisive again and again and again not necessarily in his goals but in the way that he's allowed some of the supporting players around him to perform look for instance at how how well Mason Mount has played around him how well Christian Pulisic has operated around him you know Giroud is great in a very literal way he scores goals he creates chances but he's also a terrific facilitator he's a very pliable player he's someone that's able to adjust around the styles of different footballers who who you know who Chelsea also need to be playing well at the moment and he deserves an awful lot of credit for that Mike, Mike, can I jump in and ask you a question for once? Yeah, um, yeah <laughs> look, don't take this the wrong way. You've, you've been, I will. You've been, you've been around a while. You've seen a lot of players. <laughs> Where's this going? Okay, you've watched a lot of football. Uh, have you? Ever I was seen... in the Charles Wollaston fan club. Yeah, exactly. That's where I'm going with this. Um, have you ever seen a striker, a centre forward, that attacks crosses at the near post better than Olivier Giroud? Because that goal that he scored for me was absolute trademark. Giroud, nipping in in front of his marker, steering it in at the near stick with his foot or his head, often his feet. I, I think he's the best in the business at it. Mm. I suppose Van, Van Nistelrooy used to do that quite a lot, didn't he? You know, I, 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 I was struck by that goal as well. It was also the subtlety of it, you know, the, the subtlety of the touch. And again, that's, I suppose that's what you pay for, ultimately, is, is experience. And, you know... I think, and Seb's right, that we, we we are inclined to give some credit to Frank Lampard, one, because of his personality. But secondly, I thought the way that he has actually responded to Giroud is a sign of his managerial maturity, isn't it? That That's fair. He's basically That's put fair. his hands up and said, look, actually, yeah. I've probably got that wrong. Yeah, um, he got... Yeah, yeah. Go on, go on. He, no, he just hung his hat on Tammy Abraham, didn't he? He was determined to give him a shot and not just a two games let's see how you go shot it's almost as if he promised Tammy a, an extended run in the side I don't think he would have vocally promised Tammy that but but he wanted to give him that chance and and in the early parts of the season he, he was brilliant but but ultimately I think it's been proven that, that Giroud is the better all-round striker still but yeah no no he 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 
he could have been stubborn there, but but he's no fool, Frank Lampard. And if he you know he can see every day the qualities that Giroud brings, so so it was, it was only a matter of time before he 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 gave the big man another chance. And um, yeah, well done to Olivier for showing the right attitude. Yeah. Mm. Frank Lampard's talking about three cup finals left, the first at Liverpool on Wednesday. When you look at Chelsea, they seem to have stabilised in you know transitional circumstances. I think it's nine wins out of 11, something like that. Do you expect Chelsea, Seb, to hang on to a top four place? Oof, it's going to be close. I mean, I from what I saw from Leicester um, on Sunday, yes, I'd say so. I mean, I... I this seems a little bit sour on my part because of what we said about about who we said the uh, the the prospective finalists would be. I think Sunday's semi-finals are a little bit more about Manchester United. I'm reticent to read too much into the way Chelsea played, as impressive as they were. I think they'll almost hold on to this spot by default. I don't think they'll beat Liverpool, but I think they will beat Wolves at Stamford Bridge uh, on the last day of the season. As encouraged as I am by the players that are coming in. And there's rumours this morning that they're close to a deal for Kai Havertz from Leverkusen, and that he's a terrific player. I still have big issues with that defence, that that needs huge investment. And I, I, I'm i a little bit worried because in, unless um, unless Roman Abramovich is willing to to bankroll another further £150 million after Havertz comes in, which is probably about 70 or 80, quid late, uh, 80 million quid later, it's going to look very lopsided. And so how do you, as Frank Lampard, how do you give the, the right conditions to this new attacking unit to prosper? It's a little bit of a conundrum. I, I think they'll get through. I think they'll make the Champions League. I think what happens after that, I mean, maybe that is the question. Maybe they are waiting for that to be confirmed before completing the rebuild. But that rebuild does need to happen. You know, a, a Hakim Ziyech, a Timo Werner, Kai Havertz, these players, they make you a, a slightly different side, yes, but they don't disguise some of the flaws that this team obviously obviously has all across the defence and the goalkeeper. That's a huge problem, which, which hasn't really been addressed. The goalkeeper's not good enough. The goalkeeper also, unfortunately for Chelsea, there is no landing spot for in European football at the moment for someone who is going to cost what he does, even on loan, or who earns what he does. I mean, his, his reputation has been really badly damaged by his time in England. So... There are there are issues at Chelsea. Hopefully, Champions League football and Champions League revenue helps them to address it, but they do need to be processed properly. Well, let's look at Man United then, Aid. Am I being fair? You know, I'm not forgetting the 19-game unbeaten run, but they were found wanting on a big occasion, uh, as was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. He seemed to be exposed, you know, admitted selection mistakes. Did that tell us a lot about Manchester United and how far they've got to go? And... It does leave him with a huge decision over David De Gea, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Uh, I think it told told us that that squad depth isn't brilliant. Certainly not as strong as as a team like like Chelsea's. Solskjaer has, has by and large performed well in the big games this season, so I wouldn't I wouldn't write him off as a as a tactician. He he, he had a bit of a stinker, no doubt about it. He picked the wrong team. I said in the last pod that this would be priority number three for Manchester United and his team selection bore, bore that out. In my opinion, he changed the shape to fit in with the players that he was leaving out. It was like, well, I want to leave him, him and him out, which means I have to put these guys in. And and you know what? I think that works better in a three, four, one, two. So let's just roll with that. I don't think that it was the best team or formation for a cup semi-final. Mm. So in that sense... He had a he had a he had a very bad day at the office, but but ultimately, 
all eyes are on top four and, and Europa League, in my opinion. So no, I, I think that was um, a slight anomaly that that performance. Well, let's 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 call it right. It was it was a non-performance from Manchester United. Mm, it was a bit of a as an occasion. It was a, it was a non-event, wasn't it? In terms of you know, if you're going to have a, a big stadium and empty. Surely Wembley is probably the worst stadium you could have in in lockdown. It just felt really wrong. Am I being a bit over romantic? No, I completely agree with you. I mean, what do you associate? The, my my favourite times as a as a football writer have actually been, funnily enough, at Wembley in the sort of the the ten fifteen minutes before a cup semi final or final that starts, when it's just the fans. Before that ridiculously loud PA system kicks in, and <laughs> and the Wembley announcer, bless him, you know does what he does <laughs> and tiresomely yeah when you when you take that away when you take away the flags and the the anticipation what you're left with is something very strange indeed it's kind of why i, I had a really bizarre idea before um before football came back i i thought that um they should have moved some of these games these really high tier games to strange places like non-league grounds and i i, I understand the kind of the biological restrictions and you know why that probably wouldn't have worked but it'd been great if you'd had like uh, Chelsea Man United playing at Twerton Park or something or, you know, something similar or, you know, play a semi-final at Dulwich Hamlet's ground or go at Kingstonian or something. Because I I think it's um, it would have taken away some of the the, the weirdness of it. It's, it becomes very difficult to buy into the gravitas of an occasion when you can hear the echo of the ball and you can hear the players swearing. And I watched the League One final, League One playoff final a week ago and... Uh, uh, um, that was not, great. That's a great. I really enjoyed that. Really good game. Really good game. But it's, it's certainly strange when 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 sort of when Oxford United equalised from that mishit cross and like nine of their players came running to the the TV camera to swear down the lens. Like that was just <laughs> like it's just very strange. And you know we have to be forgiving. But Wembley, you're right, Mike. Wembley just makes it that much stranger. Yeah. Well, one thing that was decided uh, in the EFL is promotion of Leeds to the Premier League. There will be an avalanche of comment, some informed, some hysterical, because of the nature of that club, potentially. Marcello Bielsa in the Premier League, you know, assuming he signs his new contract, that's going to be fun, isn't it, Aidan? Oh, very much so, yeah. I, I do like watching Leeds United. He's an innovator as a coach and he will make sure that Leeds are very awkward opponents for, for anyone in the top flight. They'll pose the kind of questions that very few teams do pose just purely by their shape and movement and and fitness. They are incredibly fit, Leeds United, under under Bielsa. So no, I, I'm excited to see how they fare. They were sensational against Arsenal for 45 minutes in the FA Cup back in January. They couldn't keep it going, didn't score. And, and and that has kind of been their, their failing. They, they've not scored enough goals, even though they've gone up as champions. And, and I do worry that in the top flight, that will be a bigger issue, of course. So so for me, they, they definitely need to upgrade in the striker's position. And at the back, Ben White is on loan from, from Brighton. And, and based on the quality of his performances, Brighton would be daft not to bring him back into their team. So... So they need they need they need a centre half, probably a keeper, and and a centre forward. But there is also the, the, that feeling that that he might need to regenerate. I, I sense because he doesn't like to make changes that that he'll be quite loyal, like Chris Wilder was at Sheffield United. I don't know. I don't know if he's if he's got every ounce of of, of quality out of that particular team. I, I can see 
I think they need four or five new starters, actually. But it will take time for those guys to to be moulded into the Bielsa way, which which might mean, actually, that they get off to a slow start next season. It's important, isn't it, that the club doesn't get carried away. You know, you've got the chief exec already talking of them as a Champions League club in the near future. If you if you take Sheffield United as as a good model, which I think it is, it's all about measured investment, isn't it? To a set strategy. I think so. I think that's where Leeds are really interesting, Mike, in terms of what their strategy is likely to be. I don't think it's a, a secret that Andrea Redrazani, the owner, enjoys a, a close friendship with Nasser El Khalifi, the PSG chairman. And I think the, the, there's, there's, there's always been the suggestion that or Radrazani has wants Leeds to be a power in the Premier League, but he also concedes that he's probably not the right person to make them that power, the right person to deliver them back into the league. But what happens afterwards? So it'd be really interesting to see whether on their immediate re-entry, whether they, they do adopt that slightly Sheffield United sort of approach of let's consolidate, let's do what we absolutely need to do. And then a year's time when that stability exists, whether potentially a sale happens and then that next step occurs after that. I think that's what I'd expect. Bielsa's awkward. For whatever else he is, his idiosyncrasies probably mean that if someone were to come in above him or someone were to impose a kind of a phalanx of what we would call Premier League ready footballers and force them on his side, that's the kind of thing that would force him not to consider his future at the club, but that is not going to be healthy. So I would I would suspect that the team that takes the field in the Premier League in you know a month and a half's time is going to largely be what it was you know last weekend because otherwise there's no way of ensuring Bielsa's future. There's no way of getting him to sign the contract, the new contract, and get him to commit his his um, you know short term future to the club, other than to allow him to continue with the kind of the uh, the creation of this project because that's what he likes to do. He's he is difficult and he's contrary. He's the kind of person that might say, oh, you know what, I, I kind of fancy, you know, going to, to manage Lille for, you know, a, a, a year and a half again. You know, that kind of thing. So you have to, you have to tread carefully with him. I, I, I can imagine, maybe, let's say Philippe Coutinho, let's go back to him. I can imagine like, Leeds ownership maybe thrusting Coutinho in, in, into Bielsa's dressing room saying, there you go, look, He'd be there's, there's a world-class He'd be player. disgusted. And, and, no, I'm telling you what would happen. He wouldn't pick him till January. <laughs> He'd just leave him on the bench, train him up and say he's not ready, he's or not ready, or he's or not ready. Out, eh? Or he'd walk out, you know, because yes. um, yeah. if, you don't, if you don't give Bielsa the right conditions, he does not react well. And he's not afraid just to, uh, to, to, to walk out. He is an incredibly headstrong personality. Football clubs, as we know, are strange, politically freebile places anyway. And you've only got to look at Watford for that, haven't you? Now, they're in disarray. They're looking for their 13th manager in nine seasons. Nigel Pearson sacked. I thought it was extraordinary. You know, when he appointed Watford had one victory, if you extrapolate his performances, that's worth about 45 points over a full season. I saw a stat somewhere that that would, I think, be Watford's second best ever Premier League performance. It, they, the owners got rid of two key players in January, gave him one back. To, to say that he was undervalued is to put it mildly, isn't it? Well, yeah, from a footballing perspective, it seems like a bonkers decision. But football isn't just about, about football, is it? It's about personalities and it's about conflict sometimes. And, and there are strong rumours doing the rounds that, that there was a major 
disagreement inside the dressing room at West Ham. I'm not surprised because they didn't play well in that match and that something's been reported back from one of Pozzo's members of staff to, to, to the to the top. And, and then there's been a, a strong discussion that has, that has ended in, in this decision. That is just a rumour that, 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 that I think I'm not the only person that's, that's heard that. So sometimes it just comes down to... To, to two people having a blazing round saying, you know, and the, and the person in charge saying, you're, you're out. Like, it can't have been, it can't have been anything else because you wouldn't choose to ditch Pearson and bring in Hayden Mullins for, for the last two games of the season. You just wouldn't do it. That, that is, that is footballing suicide really to, to leave a manager, to put a manager to one side that, that, that has, has galvanized the group. And for me, it, it's, it, it found his best team. Of late, even though that was a poor performance, uh, West Ham. So yeah, it's uh, it's a worry for West Ham. They're just they're just praying. Uh, for, it's a worry for Watford. They're just praying that that Villa and Bournemouth don't don't get the results now. Yeah, I suppose you know, when you look at it, yeah, you know, it was interesting that you know, there are reports that uh, Troy Deeney might get some form of almost player coach role in the short term. But let's look at the players. Can we, Seb? Because of the nature of the football club, and it's a club which is completely wedded to its business plan, you know, a player doesn't have an emotional investment in the club because there's no emotional investment in them. Like that, can you get that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the club is set up to, to almost be a facilitator of players' ambition. Watford pitch themselves as a club whereby players can come in, can achieve, and then bounce out to somewhere else. It's a very transient model. And you're right, Mike. I mean, it's also, I wonder if this is kind of the, the, the explanation for a lot of what we've seen from Watford in the past, in the kind of, in the first few years when they came back into the Premier League, they had that habit of just collapsing once safety was assured and then seeing out the rest of the season until, until let's, let's be honest, the new cast of players could be put together for the next year. What worries me in this instance is I was reading... Um, my friend Adam Leventhal's reporting on this situation, on the Pearson sacking. One of the details in there was that there was some animus stoked up by one of Nigel Pearson's team selections, the failure to include uh, you know, Nathaniel Chalabar in uh, the West Ham game, irritated members of the ownership or the executive structure. You know, We can debate the tactical element of that, and maybe there's a point, but the idea that you've got non-footballing people querying team selections that's really worrying like because you if it's I mean I, I don't know it was non-specific who was irritated by that but if you've got a manager who you've appointed and you're second guessing the put the team he puts on the pitch I don't think any good footballing story includes that kind of anecdote you know you go anywhere back in history you, you, you see sort of owners who think they know the game a little bit better than they really do or you know uh, technical directors whatever the case may be if you appoint a manager and you're willing to let it be known that you're not happy with his team selections. That's that's just that's not on. Those are not the good conditions. That's not the they're the right conditions for a team to to develop under any circumstances. It, it feels to me like Potts, the the, the owners there, the Potsos, it's their club, and they don't want managers to stick around because they will then be synonymous with that club. It's it's their club, and they they just want to to bring in who they want when they want, and, and I think it's almost a power trip. On, the, on their part, I really do. Having, going back to your other point, though, they have had a number of players that have been stables, that have been constants. Foster, Dini, Dekure, Kapu, 
guys like that have been been there for a while. It's but, not uh, like it's, it's constantly it's, evolving. No, I, I agree there, mate. But isn't that isn't that sort of? I mean, in, in, not in every case, but aren't, isn't that because some of them just haven't been able to earn moves elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Like a Decore mm-hmm. wanted to leave, but no one would pay the money that no one would pay his asking price. You know, I'm sure you know one of the ways in which um, Gerard Delafay was coached the club was. You know, you can relaunch your career. You can go back to the the level from which you've fallen, and he can't because he's too inconsistent. He's injury prone, and so in some cases, I'm sure there is loyalty, and people love being in the club. But I, I, is that I, I don't know. Like it feels like that's an indictment of performance as much as anything else, possibly. Mm. What Watford at Manchester City on Tuesday, and then at Arsenal. Now Villa need to probably beat Arsenal on Tuesday to give themselves a chance, don't they, Aid? Not necessarily, because West Ham, who are safe on the last day of the season, all of a sudden that that they look not inviting opponents, but they look beatable. So, so no, I think a draw against Arsenal is is certainly achievable. Well, look, they're at, they're at home, but their home record against the the bigger teams has been dreadful, hasn't it, Aston Villa? So, so if they were to get a draw, I think they might see it as a victory of sorts and back themselves to go and, and win at the London Stadium. And then the ball is in, in Watford's court. Can they nick anything from their really challenging last last couple of games? So, um, no, I, I wouldn't write Villa off at this stage. I think they can they can get points from, from both games. What about Bournemouth, Seb? They're at Everton in their final game. They can't score, they can't defend, and VAR is uh, ganging up on them by the, sound, by the look of it. Uh, is that classic relegation material? Yeah, definitely. Oh, goodness, how cruel was that? That that, that VAR <laughs> yeah. intervention. That's that's probably the cruelest of the season. Given the way that do you see the reaction of the goalkeeper and you know of Eddie Howe and uh, oh, I don't know that was that was that was tough. Yeah, Mike. Also, I, I think I gave up on Bournemouth the moment we found out that Nathan Aki was going to miss the rest of the season. Can't defend. Know that attacking. Uh, David Brooks has come back into the team, and they look a little bit better for that. But he's not fully fit. He's not. He's not back where he was before he got hurt. And yeah, I, I think probably um, you know had had that equaliser stood, I'd have been able to make a case for them surviving. As it is, because of their goal difference, because they managed to concede an extra goal after that happened. Shea Adams made it two 0 I think the hole is too deep now, and that that saddens me. I know we always say this about clubs that are threatened by relegation, but there really are some very nice people at Bournemouth. From a, a journalist perspective, I was I've always been treated very well by the people that work there, and um, they've been very considerate and helpful. Those are the people that that are going to get it in the neck, I'm afraid. So it's a very sad situation, but it looks inevitable now. Okay, let's try and pull this all together then. Since you've got the mic, Seb, any thought for the day? Yes, Mike. I, I wanted to have a a rant about goalkeeping analysis. It's one of the blind spots in broadcast media when a goalkeeper is out of form. And yeah, we, we are talking about David De Gea here. It's amazing that even now in 2020, years after kind of the um, the dawn of the new television age, we still assess goalkeepers with generalities. We're talking about players. We're, we're talking about players being disappointed with things or maybe doing better or no, the, the sort of the analysis of uh, David De Gea's day at Wembley against Chelsea was pretty damning. But where's the discussion about the nature of goalkeeping form? Because it's an incredibly complicated beast, isn't it? It's not like being a forward and scoring a goal and you know and 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 sort of returning to your equilibrium. It's a much more convoluted process. And so I really would like it doesn't necessarily have to be ex goalkeepers working in in punditry, but it should be people that understand the position 
and it's it's just such a it's such an oddity i mean you've got i'm biased because he's my friend and we know him and we like him but you know where where's the place for someone like dave priest you know you know in, in this kind of thing because you know when you when you follow analysis of the position on twitter for instance and dave isn't the only person that does this it's fascinating for people like me that sort of you know you don't you don't kind of have access to that kind of knowledge and and goalkeeping training and you know in coaching sessions is, is sort of almost almost occurs in a little cave of its own where no one else is uh, you know able to sort of watch or, or learn anything about it so let's do better on that front let's have some guys that really know what they're talking about actually diagnose the problems with someone like David De Gea when they appear or you know maybe have that you know we were talking about the Leno Martinez conundrum at Arsenal let's have people that can actually add some weight to that get them in the you know in the in the studios and um let's see what they have to say because I'd be interested I, I want to know what how did David De Gea going go from being one of the best goalkeepers I've ever seen to what he is now with all due respect you know I, I, I want to know more about that so let's do let's do better Matt, Matt Murray's Matt Murray's good as well actually that's he, very fair is, Matt Murray is very good he's yes. on he is on the books at Sky, and and uh, yeah, I think they should use him more uh, in that capacity potentially. Yeah, I'm, I'll stick with the goalkeeper theme then, if if I may. Does does having no crowds impact on a goalkeeper's performance? I just I'm just thinking about the playoff finals that we saw at Wembley, League Two, League One. Goalkeepers ha- just basically had a, had a nightmare. David de Gea. Yesterday had a stinker. We've seen it in the Premier League. Goalkeepers being caught in possession. Allison against Arsenal recently. Prior to that, Southampton's keeper was sloppy. I just feel that that the presence of fans might just sharpen up the majority of goalkeepers. It's it's just a little thing to throw out there, but but it it, it strikes me that unexpectedly, because you would imagine with with 10,000 people standing behind you potentially screaming abuse at you you would think that that would be a tougher environment for a goalkeeper it's not it's not working out like that strange yeah well i hope you forgive me this victor meldrew moment but celebrity referees <laughs> really <laughs> That should be a contradiction in terms, since the most effective officials tend to be efficient rather than effervescent, or think they're effervescent. Now, I'll come clean. I've had an aversion to personality refs ever since someone called Roger Milford, who was a permed preening ninny, unnecessarily sent off Wilf Rostrum, one of my favourite Watford players at the time, and cost him the chance to captain a team in the 1984 FA Cup final. Football fans never forgive and certainly never forget. You could argue that the personalised boots worn by John Moss in Saturday's semi-final were subtle. Yet the word Mossy embroidered (laughs) into the leather. Dear me. Come on, Mike. What next? The Mike Reed autograph red card... You'd have thought in this era of recurring chaos triggered by VAR that referees need to keep a low profile. What do you think? I'll be interested in your views. And thanks once again for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. 
It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 